Well, have you learned the art of passing blame? Sometimes we call it passing the buck. Have you ever heard that phrase? I was unable to confirm this story this week, but the story is told of a small town in California where three new fault lines were discovered. It happened to run directly under a university campus, and the geologists that discovered them were given the privilege to name the names of these faults. You can guess what three names they came up with. Your fault, his fault, and their fault, which speaks to the human condition, doesn't it? Since that very first sin, it's his fault, it's her fault, it's their fault. I wasn't there. I don't serve on that committee. That doesn't fall under my job description. That was before I came. Remember Adam's response to God in the Garden of Eden? Genesis chapter 3, verse 12, the Lord comes seeking Adam and Eve, and he asks Adam what's going on, and Adam simply responds, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of this tree, and I ate. And then later the woman says, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Blame it on the woman, blame it on God, blame it on the serpent. It's a human tendency. We don't like to be connected with faults. The year I taught high school, where's your homework? The sky. It's somewhere else. Because to admit that we have messed up, men especially, that we have made a mistake, is that possible? Requires some humility on our part, doesn't it? To admit that we were part of the problem, So rather, the easy thing to do is pass it off, pass blame. It doesn't all directly fall on me. You know, I didn't get that email until yesterday afternoon, if I had only known sooner. So when the boss places blame on us, we can't take it out on our boss. And so we go home and we take the stress out on our wife, who in turn takes it out sometimes on the kids, who in turn take it out on each other or the dog, and the trend goes on and on. The dog chases the cat, the cat catches the bird, you know, the routine. It's normal at our house. So much easier to place blame than to take responsibility. To stand up and say, I really blew it. I messed up. It's always somebody else's fault. That's why we have all these frivolous lawsuits. We could be here a long time coming up with the most frivolous lawsuit, couldn't we? Suing because the coffee that they spilt on themselves was too hot. Suing for falling in somebody else's store. Did you hear of the burglar who sued for being bitten by a police dog? Or here's another one in 2001. Some wildlife activists had an anti-hunt rally. And on the way home, two members hit and killed a deer in their car. They turned around and sued the New Jersey Division of Fish and Wildlife for its desire to increase deer populations. Go figure. Frivolous lawsuits. So the mentality then becomes, no problem is my problem. If something happens, I need simply somebody else to blame. And the human tendency is to distance ourselves, step back, step away from a problem. Whoa, that's them over there. That's not us over here. And I know not in this church, but if someone in another church goes through a divorce, makes known an addiction, has some problematic theology. 
sometimes even just a tragic death in the family. And all too often, that person can see friendships just kind of backing off, disappearing. We'll be friends, but it'll be a little bit more at arm's length. We've all seen it. People stop sitting with them or as close to them. I mean, after all, they don't want to be identified with their problem, with those kinds of people. We don't want to be tainted, if you will. Yet if we look at the life of Jesus, if we look at the life of Jesus, he was accused of being a wine-bibber and a glutton, a friend of publicans and sinners. He moved toward those with problems, not away. Because he saw in those people a sincere desire to humble themselves and to be changed. He didn't just hang out with these kinds of people that had no care about anything else and didn't want to change. No, 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 no. That's not the picture. The picture is people that say, I've got problems. Will you help me? No, 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 no. You've got to figure it out on your own first before I'm going to sit in the pew with you. That's not the picture we have of Jesus. He comes alongside. Dr. Leon Eldridge, University of Central Florida, did a health study to determine how much time was spent with patients in two different categories. Those that were deemed terminally ill, meaning they're not going to make it. It looks grim. It's a matter of time. 27 minutes a day they were visited. 27 minutes. Those thought to get well, even though it may be rough, but we think this person will recover. Do you want to know what the difference was? Six and a half hours a day. Could it be from the moment they were pronounced terminally ill? I, I just, I don't know what to say. The very moment when they need human companionship more than any other time, people begin to naturally distance themselves. And while that may be the human tendency, that need not be the human reality. When we hear about a tragic situation or a circumstance, how should God's church respond? How are we to respond in this community of faith, community of believers? I want to look at an example with you. If you brought your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Nehemiah. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, and let's see how he responds to this question. When he hears of a tragic situation or circumstance, Nehemiah chapter 1, and we know it says in the first word, verse, these are the words of Nehemiah, and it came to pass in the month of Chislev, which is November, December, in the twelfth year, as was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of his brethren, came with men from Judah and asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. We know from later chapters that refer more directly, this is not just his brother, this is his brother. And he says, hey brother, how are things going back home? I haven't heard. The email is down, the internet's not working. I ran out of minutes on my phone. Tell me. What's going on in Jerusalem? I mean, after all, that's a thousand miles away. And so, verse 3, they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now, that's bad news. The walls are broken. The gates are burned. How's my church I grew up in? Well, I hate to tell you, it was looted. They burned it down to the ground. 
doesn't look good. How did he feel when he heard things weren't going well in Jerusalem? When it is someone other than you, how do you feel? Nehemiah could have said, well, it's not my church. It's not happening in my conference. It's not my prayer meeting. And after all, there are some people over there that kind of grated my nerves anyway. How do you feel when you hear bad news? Again, the human tendency is to say real quick in the back of our mind, I'm glad it wasn't me. Or sometimes even feelings of, well, they deserved it. They were asking for it. Sometimes there's some smug satisfaction. Why? Because their bad news is not my bad news. Their problems are not my problems. But their problem is our problem when we belong to this community of faith. And the stronger our community of faith, the more sensitive we are to the concerns of others. Would you agree? We are a church family, warts and all. So what do we do when there are problems in the community of faith? Do we publish the problems? Boy, oh boy, I've got a crummy church. Let me tell you about it. You know, the tabloids are a multi-billion dollar industry. And what's the premise? Other people's problems, right? Have you ever seen church tabloids? They exist, sadly enough. And some get great pleasure in reading about all the problems our church has today. Does the church have problems? Yeah. Are leaders perfect? No, they're not. And I recognize that there are times when it's appropriate to address those problems and speak to those problems. But even in those instances, we have to look and prayerfully consider, is that out of empathy? Is that out of concern for the individual, for those involved? Or is it mean-spirited, aimed only to tear down and destroy? Because after all, who's the accuser of the brethren? Is it not sinful to treat problems like something to talk about in the rumor mill? Somehow we get this idea that it's okay as long as we know it's true. Have you ever heard a news story reported that on Asheville Highway and Four Seasons Boulevard, nothing happened today? All was peaceful and harmonious. Why? Because 95% of reporters, probably 99%, look for problems. That's their focus. But I submit to you, Seventh-day Adventist Church, we need to have a different focus because we're family. Imagine me publishing bad news about my daughter. I hear she did such and such. So what do I do? Well, I write a newsletter and I say, my daughter messed up. She's a real problem. Would I do that? Of course I wouldn't because we're family. So how should the community of faith respond to problems? Let's continue in our story here in Nehemiah chapter 1, still verse 4. <clears throat> so it was when I, Nehemiah, heard the words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Why did he weep? Because he was empathetic. He didn't say, wasn't there, not my fault. I have a good job. I wonder whose fault it was anyway. Because to further expose the problems doesn't build walls. It doesn't solve the issue they're facing now, does it? Was this Nehemiah's direct problem? I mean, we know at the end of the, the chapter here, for he was the king's cupbearer. That's a pretty high up position. You talk about influence. 
And he could say, you know, I have a good job. I have a good life. I'm a thousand miles away. Certainly, I shouldn't be on the first responder list at all. But even though he was far away physically, he identified with their problems emotionally. And if we are really the family of God, we will not distance ourselves, but we'll mourn, we'll pray, we'll fast, we'll say, Lord, what can we do? In the business world, there's a saying that states, if you see a problem, you own the problem. Have you heard that one before? Meaning you are now responsible to be part of the solution. People in our church have problems. But that's all the more reason to pray for them, to fast for them, to ask the Lord, how can I be part of the solution? How can I draw close to them in this time of need and crisis, as opposed to everybody back away, leave them stranded in the middle of the circle, and when they fail miserably, we all look at each other and say, see, I knew they didn't have it in them. I knew they were going to fall. I knew the pastor shouldn't have baptized them in the first place. And in our smugness, we continue to talk and ridicule and send emails as we step away and become part of the problem rather than the solution. As a kid growing up, we had this family tradition. And the weekend right before school started, for whatever reason, Dad didn't have to preach that Sabbath every, every year. And so we would take off with a bunch of our friends and we'd go up to Indian Boundary. It's a place up in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains, I guess you could say. And it's a beautiful lake with mountains all around. And I remember this one time, we'd always bring canoes, and we'd go out on this lake. You couldn't have motorized boats. We were out there in our canoes and our inner tubes and all kinds of things. we just have so much fun. And one time, my best friend and I, we were in a canoe. And it was one of these old-school metal canoes with all the rivets. Remember those? Those were great. And so we're going in this canoe, and all of a sudden, one of the rivets somewhere along the way didn't make it, fell out, and all we have this little hole. I mean, it's coming up enough like this, and it's starting to fill the boat. What is my response? <laughs> Jerry, you've got a big problem, buddy. No, we have a problem. The, boat, the hole may have been under his seat, but we're both in this together. Does that make sense? And it's the same in the church. It might be you today. It might be me tomorrow. And so we continue on, verse 5. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your ears, or sorry, your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which... They have sinned, we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Had he sinned? Had he acted very wickedly? Had he not obeyed the commands and decrees? Or was he identifying and being empathetic to his people? We need to understand that when there's a problem in the church, we have a problem. Whether it's in our church, our schools, our small group, our immediate family, when there's a problem, we have a problem. And we must move to fix the problem, not exacerbate it. Any of you ever cut your hand somewhere before? That's about one of the worst injuries. And you may cut your thumb real bad. 
What do you suppose the rest of the body does? Well, it sends platelets and fibrins spring into action. They all go to the cut and they press together tighter than usual, like glue, forming a blood clot. Should not be the same in the church. Do you think the blood of the index finger says, boy, that was close. Luckily, it's not my problem. Do you think the blood stands back and simply doesn't do anything? No. It springs into action. Oftentimes, problems can be looked at a couple ways. Some say this could be our greatest disaster. No, this could be our finest hour. When we pull together as a church body, as a family, and we say we have a problem and we are going to work together until we get it right. When my children get into a fight, you know, I don't really expect them to come to me. Maybe someday it will happen, but I'm not holding my breath and say, Daddy, before you get all upset, let me just tell you, it was my fault. I started it. I'm the one to blame. If you're going to punish anybody, it's me. They were innocent. You laugh. But the reality is, as adults, are we much different? How often do you have people coming to you saying, let me tell you how I have contributed to the problem? Because we have a problem. When someone's drowning in a lake, you have to jump into the water, don't you? To rescue them. When my foot hurts or my hand or my eye hurts, I hurt. When a church member hurts, we hurt. Now, Nehemiah is not the only example Daniel's another one. Turn with me, if you will, to Daniel. Daniel, again, was in a secure position in the court of the king, but his mind kept going back to Jerusalem and this 70-year prophecy, wondering why had it not all come together. And so in Daniel chapter 9, verse 4, Daniel chapter 9, verse 4, and Daniel prays, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy for those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name. And it goes on and on and on. Daniel is one of the people in Scripture we don't have anything negative to say of. Yet here he's identifying with his people. 32 times before we get to the end of the chapter, he uses the word we, us, and our. Had Daniel turned away from God's commands? I don't believe so. But living like a community of faith was part of him. He recognized we're family. The problems of God's people were his problems. And you know, we can't identify with the success of God's people unless we're willing to identify with the failures as well. Exodus 32 is another example. When Moses is responding to this golden calf that the children of Israel had set up. And so in Exodus chapter 32, verses 9 and 10, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you, Moses, a great nation. What would you have said at that moment? Good idea, God. I had nothing to do with that golden calf. You know that. Let's get rid of this dead wood and move on. Promised land, here we come. But that's not the response we see from Moses. 
Skipping to verse 31, then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Wow. Can you say that about the people that you don't like? If you can't save them, don't save me. Now, we as Adventists preach about being the remnant church of Bible prophecy, and I fully believe that we are. I believe in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, that speaks of the devil being wroth with the woman, God's church, those that keep the Ten Commandments of God, all ten, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I believe that. God has special people in the days of Noah. He has a special people in the days of Abraham and Moses and even Peter. When in Acts 2, Peter preached powerfully, and 3,000 were baptized in a single day on the day of Pentecost. And in fact, Peter himself gives a description of these special people in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I believe we are a special people. God's remnant church. Not in an exclusive way, but in an inclusive way. Because we most closely follow Scripture. And the call is open for all to be part of God's special remnant end-time people. I believe we should keep the Ten Commandments. I firmly believe in the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy. I believe God raised up the Adventist church with a unique message for this time in earth's history. Do you? To proclaim the three angels' message to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. I believe in preaching the everlasting gospel of righteousness by faith. I believe we should fear and reverence God and give glory to Him, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. I believe in the health message. I believe in the investigative judgment taking place now and Christ ministering in the heavenly sanctuary for us even now. I believe we should worship him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. I believe in creation and the seventh-day Sabbath, the capstone of creation. So don't get me wrong. I firmly believe and I'm convicted on all of these things. But let us hang on to that while we also embrace people. Having the truth absolutely matters. But loving and caring for people equally matters. When we are more concerned about being a church that is right than we are about being a church that is loving and supportive and empathetic and gracious and compassionate, long-suffering, then we have a problem. We must have both. We must speak the truth, how? In love. And when it comes to people that are terminally ill, we must not just do well at diagnosing the scriptural problem. Well, you know what? Scripture says, spirit of prophecy says, counsel tells us, poor soul. Not just diagnose the problem, but we must also have the love, the loving bedside manner of Jesus, if you will, that comes into the room and says, let me tell you, about a God who loves you so much. 
to be involved, not just be a bystander. Are you with me? Another defining characteristic of God's church, His special people in Acts 2, just a few verses following the baptism of 3,000 souls that we talk about so often. In verse 41, we find, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among among all, as anyone had need. We have a member here with tremendous need. Well, how can we help? Let's pull together our resources. Let's sell something. Let's solve this problem together. You don't see them saying in the book of Acts, sounds like a personal problem to me. No, they sell possessions to make it happen. They identify with each other. They show empathy for each other's needs. They sacrifice for the needs of others. And of course, we can't conclude without looking at Christ as the ultimate example, can we? He may have just as easily said about Adam and Eve, too bad, they're in a lot of trouble now. Let's start over. In just seven days, we can be right back here. No, in Philippians 2, that Pastor Charles brought us through just last week, where Christ humbles himself step by step by step, lower and lower and lower, took the form of a slave and was obedient to death, and not just any death, but death on a cross. Testimony of Jesus tells us in the book Plan of Redemption, page 17, Christ's divine soul was exercised with infinite pity for the fallen pair. Through his humiliation and poverty, Christ would identify himself with the weakness of the fallen race and by humble obedience regain lost Eden. The king of the universe is willing to identify with scum like you and me. Jesus walked in our shoes. He identified with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Some say the Adventist church has too many doctrines, to which I would respond... What do you know about the will of God that you wish you didn't? Every doctrine more fully shows us the character and the love of Jesus Christ. And I say this humbly, but with such a full understanding of God, of salvation, of the gift of the Sabbath, of Jesus ministering for us now in the most holy place, in the great controversy theme, with all of this, Seventh-day Adventists, more than any other denomination, should be able to better identify, empathize, and understand because they know Jesus. That's who they identify with. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. The least we can do is love each other in this community of faith. Suppose one day a man moves in to our neighborhood here, just up the hill, and as we get to know him a little bit better, we find out that he loves to travel. And every time you see him, he's got pictures from the last trip he came or just came back from. Yet you find out that on his last expedition, he's come back with an illness that is quite serious. All of us here are afraid of what illness he has and just how contagious it might be. So in response, councils and committees are formed to figure out what to do because we cannot afford this disease to spread. Some feel it's their ethical duty to warn all the members via email and Facebook. Texts and quotations are gathered. Others go to his home to post signs saying, danger, quarantine. With nobody to care for him, this poor man only gets weaker 
and weaker as the church seems to do what they feel is their spiritual duty. Until one day, a dear old lady in this church brings this guy some food and some water, actually goes into the house to clean up the mess. And using a variety of natural remedies over time, the man shows considerable progress and is back on his feet. To which one concerned church member asks, weren't you worried you might get sick? To which the dear old lady replies, yes, but when my neighbor is sick, I am sick. Chris read us our scripture, James 2, 15 to 17. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical need, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Truly, what good is it? What good is the church? What good is this community of faith unless we take responsibility for each other? Let's pray. Dear Lord, in our humanness, too often we find ourselves running from problems. We pass blame. We avoid taking responsibility. We ask questions like, is it really my problem anyway? Lord, you have shown us this morning that we as a church are family and that anything that affects any one of us affects all of us. What good are we as a church if we don't take responsibility, if we don't empathize and care for one another? Lord, how long can a hand or a foot or a leg last that is disconnected from the body? So, Lord, may we not distance ourselves but rather follow your example and seek out those in this very congregation today that are hurting to be there for them at the very time they need us most. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.